If people lose their jobs or have financial stress or have a mental health problem, lots of people have those things happen to them and they don't commit violent acts of this kind. Not where every week in our country a woman dies. Hi everyone, my name is Mel Gordon and I'm Deputy Editor at Marie Claire and welcome to the latest episode of Finding Fearless with Marie Claire. For more than three decades, Natasha Stott Despoja has been a kick-ass part of public life in Australia. Firstly, as our nation's youngest ever senator, sitting in Canberra's Parliament House at the tender age of 26. Then in numerous government and representative roles, Natasha has consistently had a passion for the well-being of Australian women. Whether it was in her capacity as the former Australian Ambassador for Women and Girls, or as the long-standing chair of Our Watch, our peak body tasked with preventing violence against women and children, Natasha has simply always had our backs. And now at this time of social isolation, where domestic violence victims are more exposed than ever before, she has much to say about how we can all help each other to ensure women at risk are looked after. Natasha's words of wisdom are what we need right now. Natasha Stott-Despoia, thank you for joining us here today in our new normal of social isolation. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm trying to overcome all my Luddite tendencies and actually make (laughs) this work. (laughs) Well, okay, 10 seconds in, we're going fine. (laughs) So we'll keep going. (laughs) So how have you been coping with the isolation? So and you're now at home with your husband and your two kids. How's it all going? Well, I think like many Australians, I'm adjusting slowly. Family is proving an interesting challenge, uh, not the least of which is online schooling. But look, my kids have been pretty good considering. And I had 14 days self-isolation, sort of mandated by pretty much the government for obvious reasons. I was on a plane from the US, from uh, New York and the United Nations a couple of weeks ago. So I had my 14 days. So I'm very grateful now for what limited freedom I have and for the good fortune that my family and I have, um, because I know there are people that are doing it much, much tougher. So I feel guilty complaining, but I'm realistic too. I think all of us are finding uh, some of the family issues not always the easiest to contend with when you're in a confined space. The thing that I find most interesting about you, like everyone would have heard in our intro, you've basically been at the forefront of a lot of women's issues in Australia for the better part of three decades as a politician and as Australia's ambassador for women and girls and as chair of our watch. So you kind mm-hmm. of have a really unique perspective on women's position in Australia, which which, I, which is part of the reason why we well, we've been talking to you for what feels like years at Murray Clare. Um, um, <laughs> with the current situation, historically we know that like pandemics, like the current coronavirus crisis, affect men and women differently. And we're, we're seeing that just from a health perspective with more men than women being struck down. But what about the other elements like socially, politically, financially, that kind of thing? Should we all be worried about um, the impact this will particularly have on women in Australia? Well, of course, we should have uh, a concern about the impact on everyone. But you're right, this really deserves what they call a gendered lens to be applied to it. We need a gender lens because we really need to know the impact this is having 
not just health-wise, but the health of our society. Um, we know that women are disproportionately uh, negatively affected in any crisis, regardless of what that is, but especially health crises of this magnitude. And in the area that I'm working, and you mentioned our watch, which is, you know, the National Organisation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children, we're particularly conscious of uh, issues like domestic and family violence and the impact on, in fact, you know, the antidote to this pandemic, or well, it, you know, the antidote to spreading it, is for people to be in confined spaces with family. And in some cases, that's heaven on earth. Uh, but in many cases, it's actually hellish. It is very difficult. And I would suggest terrifying for some women and children in our community who are confined with perpetrators. So those who are victims of violence, but also those who are at risk of violence. And we know that those factors can all be exacerbated by those tensions and stresses that uh, we're all conscious of, regardless of our family circumstance. So we do need a gender lens, even little things like housework, caring roles. Again, the larger proportion of that work is done by women. So all of this is going to have an impact economically, but it is having a huge impact uh, socially. And I think we're only just scratching the surface, Mel. I know that um, there were academics who studied like the after effects of other major health crises like Ebola and the Zika virus and bird flu, all that kind of thing. They found that there were deep, long-lasting effects on gender equality. For example, during the Ebola outbreak in um, Africa, everybody's income was affected. It was very similar to what was happening here. There was general big shutdowns, people lost jobs, all that kind of thing. But men, well, what they found was that men's income returned to what they had made pre-outbreak faster than women's income. And so there was this distorted kind of effects of an of the epidemic that looked like it just went on forever and ever and ever. And as you kind of like hit, hit on, really women's independence will be a silent victim of this, that um, obviously women are, tend to be hoisted with the childcare responsibilities and that has a big impact in the home, mainly because of, well, women take the hit, don't they? Hit, and then recovering from that. I just wonder about how that's precisely going to you, you know that women are going to be more affected, particularly those who are in lower skilled professions, lower wages, those who are already highly casualized. A lot of those roles are the first to go, and then you know they don't always come back. Isn't it fascinating though that one of the big decisions made by government in recent days has been to provide free childcare for those pivotal <laughs> health and other workers? You know it's extraordinary that it takes a crisis for a government, a largely male-dominated government, to recognise that it, you know affordable, accessible, quality childcare is the mainstay of any society, not just in a crisis, but in order to keep us going and functioning as communities and particularly when it comes to the opportunities for women and men to work. So there are going to be some big lessons learned, but I suspect that, yes, there will be huge, even generational consequences economically. And of course, when you're talking health impacts like mental health and, of course, domestic violence, you're looking at generational impacts there as well. Of course, as you've said, Natasha, one of the big at-risk groups is women in domestic violence situations with all of these forced social isolation restrictions in place. How dire is the current situation for women in domestic violence relationships and what, what, what is actually being done to help these women? 
Well, we don't have a clear picture of the impact of the virus, certainly in Australia, when it comes to women and families, and particularly those who are victims of violence or at risk of violence at the moment. But we do have anecdotal evidence and reports from around the world now that are showing increased levels of violence based on financial stress and tension, lack of distractions, confined spaces, but also there is always that underlying uh, causal factor, which is gender inequality. So you don't get gendered violence because someone's lost their job and you don't get it because someone's got a mental health problem or has a childhood history of violence, etc. You don't get that unless you have a fundamental disrespect for women. So some of those factors are combining now in some of the most tense and worst situations you can imagine. We've seen in China, the United States and other places increased reports of violence. In Australia, we've seen a massive increase even in Google searches for how to get help if you are at risk of violence. Uh, and we've seen a government that has responded reasonably quickly um, for a government at Commonwealth level by providing a package that is about providing uh, support uh, for those important helplines, as well as uh, providing money to launch a campaign, um, an advertising campaign to assist those people uh, to find out what they can do. I mean, because think about it, you know, the opportunities to access help in those at-risk situations have clearly diminished. It is very hard to access a phone or use a computer or ring a helpline if you have a perpetrator in the room with you all the time. So we do know that there is an awful reality that some women and children are trapped in houses or units or places with their perpetrators. And that is very, very scary. And we also have frontline workers telling us in Australia now that there are some examples of men using the virus uh, in a coercive way. So threatening to infect someone or, you know, making demands on women based on threatening them with health and other repercussions. So you can just start to see some of the things that can go wrong. And obviously there will be many, many stories and no doubt some quantitative data as the weeks and months progress. Mm. Is there anything the rest of us can do to help women in these situations? Look, the message that I always give people, regardless of you know the circumstances in your country at any given time, is do something, be a good bystander. And so that means, obviously, there are some limits to running into your neighbour's house at the moment and checking on them, but there are ways to do that. Picking up a phone, using snail mail, walking past if you're still not in entire lockdown, like you know my community, you can keep an eye out you can keep an ear out. If you think that there are events or distressful circumstances or altercations going on, you must report them to the police. For example, the Victorian police gave a very early guarantee that they would not take money or resources away from domestic violence incidents, reporting or complaints or interventions. And that's really important that police still continue to provide what support they can. And in fact, they should be doing that on an increased basis. You should be getting people out of places, supporting them with accommodation, whether that's, you know, I'd like governments to requisition 
you know, hotels and units for those people who are at risk when it comes to uh, isolation, at risk of violence. And certainly we should be funding, uh, providing support, additional funding for our women's shelters who, of course, do this every day, try and get women and children out of violent or um, abusive situations. So be a good bystander. Report things if you think there is something going on. Be available to your friends, loved ones, relatives, neighbours, community members, if you think they need someone to reach out. So it's it's all part of what we're learning at the moment, Mel. You know, this virus, this pandemic has taught people to be good bystanders generally. You know, dropping a note in a letterbox or doing shopping for someone, it's the same principle that applies and it's obviously a very serious circumstance. So for some people, it's not always safe to intervene, but intervention and being a good bystander and reporting where you can is absolutely fundamentally important right now. Really, there are lives that depend on it. Mm. It's interesting what you said before about from all of the evidence that basically the underlying the causal factor of domestic violence is gender. It is to do with gender inequality. It's not just people because they've lost their jobs or because extenuating circumstances like that, that, that sh- the shocking murder of Hannah Clark and her three children in Brisbane early this year really kind of struck a nerve with everyone in the community and everyone was saying at the time that surely this is the turning point this is the turning point when we when government can actually do something and we can see we can see what the government can do and is capable of doing when it mobilizes and and is actually you know focused on wanting to make a change how come domestic violence can't seem to get that full government support to make that real ongoing change Oh, you're so right. The impact of uh, Hannah Clark's murder on the community was extraordinary and, of course, the deaths of her children. So I thought, yes, this is a turning point because it was such a wave of sadness and anger and frustration. And that frustration hopefully is going to be channeled into change. And the combination of changes that are required may seem quite complex, but they're actually you know, there's an evidence base that tells us what to do. And you're right, governments could be doing this. They could be doing more. In some cases, they are. We have a a national action plan um, that is about reducing and eliminating violence against women and their children. And the work that we do at Our Watch is a key part of that, because what we do is primary prevention, trying to, you know, stop the violence before it starts. But as you can imagine, that takes not years it takes decades sometimes generations to change behaviors and attitudes that give rise to violent behavior in the first place and yes your point about the underlying causal factor and gender is one that can't be lost on us because it's not that someone snaps you know Hannah Baxter's you know violent ex-husband former partner did not just snap this usually is the end of sometimes you know years lifetimes of, of emotional or other abuse. So also we've got to remember, you're right, if people lose their jobs or have financial stress or have a mental health problem, lots of people have those things happen to them and they don't commit violent acts of this kind. Not where every week in our country a woman dies violently. That is a horrific statistic. So you're right, what can governments do? Well, obviously resources are part of that, but really changing the hearts and minds of people throughout our community so that we learn what respect means, that we understand that women are not inferior to men, that we should have the same opportunities and that we should be reflected and represented equally throughout 
all institutions, but especially our powerful ones, all of these things start to create a society where we do have a new normal, and that is one where we respect women and children and hopefully eliminate gendered violence once and for all. It won't happen overnight, but it will happen. As they say in the Pantene commercial, it won't happen overnight, but it will happen. So I have to have some optimism, Mel, because it would be really hard to do this work all the time if you didn't think you could change society. And I know change is possible and we know primary prevention works and we know Australia's been a world leader in it and we know that we can actually change those messages that we send, you know, women and men or boys and girls from the moment they're born and we can change the story that ends in violence against women and children. We can do it, but we need Mm. everyone to play a role. Have you actually seen any evidence of things like that already happening? Particularly, I mean, I suppose you really see it at a school level, haven't you? I, mean, I assume yes. that you've gone around and visited schools and seen the kind of things that they're doing. What, what kind of stories have you seen around that? Well, I mean, we know that we've got to create change and, you know, respectful relationships in all the settings that we have in our society. So workplaces, obviously homes, because parents and guardians are still the greatest influence, uh, believe it or not, on children's lives. I find that sometimes hard to believe when I'm cooped up in a house with both my kids. I'm pretty convinced I'm not that influential. Um, But certainly schools are critical. Um, And yes, I've been really privileged to watch the rollout of uh, respectful relationships education across different parts of Australia. And, uh, you know, I've seen it, for example, in a Queensland suburban school with a really mixed cohort of young, young students, so primary schoolers, and just the things that they learn. It's not, you know, it's not particularly complex. It's just about respecting each other. It's about how to not bully each other or intimidate each other. It's all about, you know, those those questions that we ask our kids sometimes, you know, what jobs can women have? What jobs can men have? And some of the stereotypes that we don't even realise that our kids have taken on. So there are there are little things, but mostly it boils down to the fact that young people need to understand that violence is not appropriate. Also understand that violence is not something to which they should ever be subjected. But it always has to be age-appropriate education. So there are some things that you can't teach junior and primary kids, of course but you can teach them just to treat each other with respect and that's something that I think we all endeavour to do Um, and I think one of the strongest most influential settings is sport so school plus sport equals real change but of course we also know that you can't just get messages from one area so if you get great messages at school that's wonderful but if you come home to a family environment where there's disrespect or outdated or sexist attitudes, that has an impact. So it has to be multi-layered, has to be constantly reinforced, whether it's the images we see on television, whether it's who's playing football and whether it's, you know, who's running our parliaments. All of these messages add up to a society where we either do or do not respect women and men equally. How do you cope with that like slow pace of change and are you still having to convince people in power the importance of early intervention and the importance of this multi-layered approach? It must do your head in. Oh, it's completely debilitating at times, to be honest. And it's more, it's so confronting because, you know, it's 25 years this year since I walked into federal parliament and, you know, then the youngest woman to do so. And I just thought, oh my gosh, 
you know, in 25 years, imagine what the changes will be. We'll have a society where parliament's equal. You know, we will have had a few female prime ministers by then. Domestic violence and family violence, which is something that I've always been, um, you know, quite uh, committed to preventing. And it was a big issue for me in Parliament that I wanted to be a part of change. I honestly thought we'd see a radical reduction in rates by now, but it's the slow pace of change that, yes, it does do my head in. But one thing I have learned as a former legislator, as someone working in policy, as a former deputy chair of Beyond Blue and now as chair of Our Watch, is that change takes time. And if you want meaningful long-term change, obviously you've got to provide solid commitment and resources. So governments can't just, you know, throw some resources at primary prevention and say, look, fix it, fix that, you know, create a a society that doesn't tolerate violence, fix it overnight. We know you can't do that. So my frustration is the fact that we know how to do a lot of this stuff, but we're not always, we're constantly fighting, you know, campaigning for resources, for support. And it's only in recent years, you know, you'll know with the media, with magazines, you know, where taglines like 1-800-RESPECT being put at the end of articles that may reflect on violence against women. Some of the changes in the media, particularly mainstream media reporting about acts of violence, that has changed so much in the last five, 10 years. We do a lot of work with the media and those things make a difference too, because When you want to really prevent um, violence and you really want to change attitudes around violence towards women and children, victim blaming is a really big part of that. And the media has had a really disproportionate influence on how we portray victims and whether or not we think it's a woman's fault if she is hurt or raped or abused. So there has been change. And I know I can see it when I look back and look at the big picture. But every day, sometimes it gets frustrating. And every time, you know, every time Mel, I give a speech or do an interview, I literally have to check the statistics about how many women have been murdered in Australia that week. And to me, that's the ultimate sign that we really haven't got where we need to be. It is just horrendous that we are still seeing these figures relatively Mm. unchanged. And that is a problem. How is Australia placed internationally like in, in, ter- in terms of domestic violence or broader equality issues like I know that you traveled around a lot when you were um, Australia's ambassador for women and girls what, what countries do you think are doing it better <laughs> or who can we learn from or who are being innovative in this area lots of countries we can learn from I mean it's really interesting because there's no one country in the world that has achieved gender equality so some of the really good, progressive, more equal um, countries, say like in Iceland, for example, they still have gender pay gaps, you know, they still have violence against women and children. So there are lots of countries where we can see uh, they may have greater equality, um, they may have women who have been in leadership positions for decades and, and years and years. I mean, Australia now is something like 50 in the world when it comes to international parliamentary union rankings. I mean, how on earth has that happened in a country that's had the right for women to vote and stand for parliament for more than a century? And yet we're still languishing when it comes to that, you know, tally of countries. But we can also provide some leadership lessons. We've been good on primary prevention. We've been good on aspects of legislation that provide for equality and equal pay. But uh, the problem that we have, and we could learn from, you know, another country or so, is the issue of implementation. And there are countries around the world, whether it's the United Kingdom or whether it's other, you know, European countries, where they've actually mandated 
you know, it may be quotas in some places in business uh, and industry bodies, or it may be quotas for parliament, even in our region where we have some of the lowest representation of women in parliaments in the world, they are turning to quotas now, whether it's Vanuatu or uh, Samoa, places like that, because they realise you cannot solve issues affecting women without women in positions of power. And we know there is a direct correlation between higher reporting of violence against women and the likelihood of reducing that violence against women if you have more women in positions of power and particularly in parliament. So that's, I know that I would say that as a former politician and I know most people think, oh my gosh, politicians can't stand them. What role do they have? But just seeing more female faces even in our federal parliament, that makes a difference. And in developing countries where women and girls see other women in positions of power, it means those girls are more likely to get into positions of leadership themselves, be agents of change, even do fewer chores. Can you believe it? You know, young girls, if they say women in parliaments, they start to look at their own education and get, you know, empowered to do so many other things, including, you know, play a role in conflict prevention. So, Mel, one of my favourite stats is, you know, if you reduce the number of women in a parliament by 5%, you are five times more likely as a country to use military intervention to solve some kind of dispute. So literally it has been proven more men in a parliament or even reducing the numbers of women in a parliament, you're more likely. I mean, I'm, I know that's hard to believe, especially when you look at America and President Trump. I'm you know, sure he, yeah. you know, yeah. Real hard I, to believe. <laughs> it's so hard to believe. But can you believe 2020 <laughs> is the year we're living in and yet we're still having these discussions and you know, know 25 years ago I was a young woman relatively getting into parliament now I'm a middle-aged oldie and I still <laughs> can't believe that some of the issues I confronted as a member of parliament are still or should be priority issues in terms of women's rights so it can get frustrating it certainly can. Do you think we're um, any closer to getting another female prime minister? Not at the moment just the sheer numbers the composition of the executive so I don't think realistically in the short term. I'd love to think that I'm wrong about that. Um, I think the fact that only around a third of the entire federal parliament is female indicates that, you know, it's very hard without a critical mass. However, I do take, you know, great um, inspiration and, and pride in the fact that there are now these amazing young generations of women coming through, younger women who are literally taking over parliament. You know, Girls Take Over Parliament is an annual event where teenage girls go into the parliament and actually are politicians for the day. Uh, it happens at a federal level, it happens in South Australia and a couple of other places. And I look at them and I think, my gosh, they're more articulate and impressive and, you know, committed than some of the um, people there representing or <laughs> replacing for yeah. the day so so you know we're getting closer in some respects um but it's you know it's that frustrating thing of any social justice movement you know you've got to be forever vigilant you know it's two steps forward one back you know the experience of former prime minister julia gillard was so so horrendous that for so many women and men mm-hmm. it turned them off politics for life yeah, um, yeah and women right. and girls who talk to me say look I don't want to be treated that way, but, you know, there's a lot of them too who are really badass and they're like, hey, I want to get into <laughs> parliament to show that I'm not going to put up with that. So I think the future's bright in terms of just the the talent and the extraordinary abilities of, of women today, um, but it's not oh, just, yeah. you know, I a case like of it. putting your hand up. 
it's not enough. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, I agree. I completely agree. I reckon the, the biggest difference between like the young girls who are coming up now is that they just call shit out. They just refuse to be put in situations that previous generations of women, you, you're the perfect example of like just expected to put up with crap because there was just, you just never had the numbers on your side. And you would have seen to be like oh, just a, a whinger, just a, a princess who, you know, can't take a joke or something like that. Whereas I love the fact that there's a generation who are now like, not they're just not they're not going to take it anymore and I'm really I, I agree with you like I feel positive that there can potentially be change um in that area through through sheer you know willpower and desire to just actually to 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 see change do you think yeah look I exactly agree I think that you know there are some things that aren't new uh, I often talk about the trivialization of women in public life or specifically in politics um, but what is new are these amazing movements that have been designed to expose and call out bad behavior you know me too time's up let her speak um, and I do reflect on my experiences and I realize just sometimes how truly awful they were and how there was just no empathy or sympathy and you're right you know you just couldn't be princess precious um there are still issues around how women are portrayed in politics you know their appearance and suitability based on you know people deem their parental or marital status to be somehow relevant all of those things I mean you've got to remember the first question I had at my first business lunch as a senator and I was so excited to show off, you know, how much I knew at the ripe old age of 26. I'd done my homework. And the first question was, did you go into politics to meet a husband? Um, yeah, I mean, hey, check out the calibre available. But, um, yeah, it was not my motivation for becoming a senator. So, I mean, these days I actually think if anyone said that at a business lunch with a female senator or a male senator for that matter, you it, people would you know, howl you down as they yeah. should. But yeah, even correct. back then it was like calling out that behaviour, you know, people used to say, oh, Natasha, you know, feminist, you know, <laughs> no humour, humourless feminist, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So there's no chance of uh, you, you, um, you know, contemplating career change going back into parliament, Natasha? Oh, would you really wish that on me, Mel? I mean, I, I say that. <laughs> Seriously and jokingly in the sense that I had uh, almost 13 years. I, I got in relatively early. I had a lot of opportunities to make change. Um, I also was a bit of a novelty factor. So consequently, in a good and a bad way, I got a lot of attention and focus. And I think being a minor party senator, so with the Australian Democrats at that time, it was, I always think of it sort of in dog years. It's like, you know, it wasn't like 12 and a bit normal political years. It was absolutely magnified. And so I feel like I, I had my run and that was, I was so excited and privileged to contribute to my country in that way. But now I feel it's other people's turn. So I'm always available to women, particularly young women who say, you know, tell me what to do. How do I get into politics? Can you help me? I'm always happy to provide advice across the spectrum uh, because I'd love to see more talent, more diversity and difference. You know, all our backgrounds reflected and represented in parliament now. But I've, I've had my go and I can only hope, as, you know, Julia Gillard would, would say, 
that we made it, you know, easier for the next person, the next young woman to get in, the next, you know, person who was not traditionally represented or powerful. And so if there was some small way, and I love it when, you know, women bump into me or I get a note or an email from someone and they say, you know what, because you got in, I got in or I got involved in politics or I ran for class captain and that makes me happier than anything, that you could start to make politics and parliament accessible. Uh, it was hard enough then. I, I don't know how we manage it today because the, the high level of disillusionment and distrust and cynicism is heartbreaking to me. It goes against everything that I wanted to achieve in my political life. I wanted to engage people in politics and make it real and create change. And I think at the moment we're at a really, really difficult position and when it comes to sort of civics and, you know, the civility of political life. Then they're the same platforms that create, you know, um, massive new voices for change, like you were saying, like Me Too and all that kind of thing. So there's positives There's positives as well. Do you think that we will emerge from this corona crisis a better or a worse society? Like what, 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 how, and how, how do we ensure that women don't get left behind? Well, you're right. It's not just a mindset, is it? It's not just us hoping that our fragile, you know, mental health or, uh, you know, societies will stick together because we overcome it, you know, based on, hey, attitude and behaviour. It's not that simple. We need structural support. You need resources. You need governments to ensure that the most vulnerable are protected and supported at this time, whether that's health workers with childcare, whether it's women and children at risk of violence, you know, whether it's people with mental health, anxiety, depression problems who genuinely are going to need. We all need support during this time. But if we look after the most vulnerable, then we are in the best position to come back from what is an unprecedented uh, health crisis, certainly, you know, in, in Australia. And I think that there are things that we can do. Um, I think there are some attitudinal things we can support, like looking after each other. And I think just the acts of kindness random kindness that we've seen in the past few weeks give me great hope. Um, I, you know, on the one hand, you look at people brawling over toilet paper in the supermarket, but on the other hand, you see people picking up each other's groceries or, you know, grabbing someone's bill for them or checking on someone with a note in the letterbox or taking dogs for walks. You know, these little things may, I hope, remind us of what we can be, who we can be. And I'd love us to emerge as a more healthy, happier, safer, kinder, and certainly violence-free society. But we have to do things to get to that point. So I think the message for a lot of women at the moment is to ask for help if you need it. If you are at risk, say so. If you're worried about a friend, neighbour, colleague, reach out to them or to the services available, including 1-800-RESPECT. And if you're a man or a woman who feels that you may be at risk of perpetrating violence, you must reach out as well. So use the services that are available. But yeah, I hope we do emerge as kinder, better people at the end of this process. Yeah, I um, agree wholeheartedly with you, Natasha. Thank you so much for um, joining us today and I hope that you can... Um, continue to be <laughs> happy in our new normal thank you and thank you for your kind words and also for the work that you do because you've changed so many lives and attitudes over the years you really groundbreaking work so I've always loved being associated with you guys so 
Thank you for the opportunity. As Natasha says, we all have a role to play in looking out for vulnerable women in our community, especially now. So let's all be vigilant to make sure all women are kept safe at this time. We hope you loved hearing from Natasha as much as we did. Please rate and review. It only takes a second. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes of Finding Fearless with Marie Claire. We'll catch up with you next time.